The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food and Health and Agriculture. And it is my great honor today to welcome Michael Stone, who is the senior editor at the Center for Ecoliteracy and the author of a great new book called Smart by Nature, Schooling for Sustainability. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I have so many questions for you. First of all, I have to tell our listeners that this book is nothing short of a one-stop shop for bringing sustainability into the school system. It is a compilation of schools that have done things right. And what most surprised me was how few people it took to make the changes. In each of these schools, I looked to see who initiated it. And it was often one or two people with a vision and a, a persistent drive. Would you agree? I would agree. I think, I think that one of the things that happens is that most of those people fairly quickly find out that they can't do it alone and they need to find other people to work with them, but it usually and often begins with one person, and sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a teacher or a school administrator, it could be a student for that matter, and when those people get energized and get passionate and then, as you said, I think, are willing to be persistent, I think that's, that's the other lesson. First, that people need to find out who else is out there who shares their ideas and is willing to work with them, and then secondly, uh, sometimes change is hard. It's slow, and institutions are slow to change. Schools may be particularly so. And uh, so people take, need, to take, need to be persistent, need to be able to take the time, set aside the time that they're going to need in order to make that change. But once they do, you can begin from a very small number of people, perhaps just one person, and really remarkable things happen. Well, I love the title of the book, Smart by Nature, and then the subtitle, Schooling for Sustainability. And there we go. We've got this word, sustainability. It's been co-opted. It's been uh, twisted. It's been taken up by those who don't meet my definition of sustainability. Um, Tell me a little bit about the word choice and what sustainability means to you. Okay. I think to... To back up a little bit with the the title of the book, Smart by Nature, and that leads us then into the way that we define sustainability. Um, We believe that uh, in order to prepare students for the challenges that they're going to be facing, one of the things they need to understand is how nature sustains life. What are the ways through billions of years of um, nature's R&D, for that matter, that nature has found to keep life going, what are the principles, what are the processes. And for us, sustainability is how nature sustains life and how individuals and communities, societies can design their practices, design their institutions, design their education in such a way that it complements the way that nature works. So I think the part of what we're interested in is, is the students learn how it is that the world really works. What are are the laws of nature? What are the constraints? What are the limits that we all have to live within? And then that they can build their own uh, institutions and societies in ways that complement those. 
I think many schools struggle with this need to teach to the test. And so sometimes the way outdoor education or teaching children to connect to nature and giving them those opportunities are seen as competing with teaching to the test. Do you think so, too? Uh, I think they're often perceived that way. And in, and, in fact, something like garden education, I've heard some teachers say that they've heard it characterized to them as playing in the dirt. Mm. And, you know, so we've, got, we've got to teach these kids, and what are you doing out there? Uh, and I think that the answer, fortunately, is that there's a growing body of research which suggests, in fact, that when students are out in nature, when they're working with things that matter, when they're working with concepts which are embodied in the experiences they're having, that, in fact, they do better on the tests as well as do better in just across the board. Their, their grades go up, their, often their attendance goes up, their behavior goes up, all sorts of consequences of getting kids into nature, getting kids out of the classroom, to have experiences that then they can bring back into the classroom. And, uh, and schools that are doing this are, f- are finding that when they get around to having to do the standardized tests, that the students are doing at least as well and often better than the students who don't have those experiences. Yeah, those, those really do seem to be consistent findings. And I know in California, which is where the Center for Eco-Literacy is based, uh, isn't there statewide legislation that requires schools to have a garden? There was... I don't think it was a requirement. There was an attempt coming out of the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction uh, to urge schools to do that and to be supportive of that, but I don't think it's a requirement. But I think most schools, when they've had that opportunity and have taken advantage of it, have been very glad they did. So that there's certainly the, the idea of a, a garden in every school was uh, came from the top as a, as a statewide initiative, and, uh, and the state was supporting it anyway, even if they weren't requiring it. Right, because there's a school in every garden. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, was that Ann Evans? Was that her brilliant deduction about garden-based education? I, I think so. I so admire her. Well, let me ask you something. You've dedicated this book to Peter Buckley. Why? Peter is a member of our trustees. He's, he was a co-founder, one of the, one of the founders of the Center for Equal Literacy, and he in some ways doesn't get the credit that other people get because he doesn't have the visibility. Our other co-founders are Fritjof Capra, who is well-known as an author, lecturer, um, personality, uh, well-known, holds seminars all around the world, people come to them. Zenobia Barlow, the other co-founder, is now the executive director of the center, and so most of the material that people see from the center, her name is associated with that. She's often invited again to appear at conferences, to serve on panels, and so on. And Peter, who is the other co-founder, has a deep and and abiding concern for the natural world, love for the natural world, and a real commitment, but he's been not so much in the public eye, and we wanted to make sure that people recognized how important he is to the work that we're doing. Well, your book is a compilation of schools that have made changes along a fairly wide continuum with regard to sustainability. Mm -hmm. Some schools focused on purchasing local food, which I'm especially interested in as a dietitian, of course. And I have to tell you that purchasing local food, the barrier that often comes up is the cost. You know, oh, we'd love to do that, but, you know, it's going to cost us more money. How did you see schools getting over that barrier? 
I think they've they've found a variety of ways, and it's it's not easy. Certainly, I mean, one one of the things is that often what they find that the problem is not so much purchasing the local food. Uh, if if the alternative is if they're trying to serve local food and serve fresh food, uh, which they're cooking from scratch, for instance, the real expense often is the labor. They, they find that they can buy food less expensively than they're getting prepared lunches, pre-frozen, uh, just reheat sorts of things, but that the cost, there is a cost um, of labor of, you know, just because you have to actually cook the food. Right. Um, and so what we talked about in the book a lot is, is a variety of ways that uh, schools have found of addressing that, and, it's, and some of them have been very creative, thinking, for instance, of the school district in Riverside, California, which is not a wealthy district at all. Um, and the Rodney Taylor, who is the director of that food service, had come from Santa Monica, Malibu, which is a wealthy district. But he really felt that he was called to serve a district which had greater needs and, and presented greater challenges. And when he got there, he discovered that, again, that their, their enrollment was going down. Um, they weren't making money on the, on the food service, certainly. It was, it was a difficult financial challenge. And he did a couple of things. One of the things he did... People said, well, how are you going to be able to increase the income um, without charging more for the food? And, and the families we have here can't afford to pay more. One of the first things he said was, well, we're only serving 52% of the students. So if we can attract more of the students to the lunch, the added income will, will pay for the things that we want to do. And so he made a very concerted effort to literally to market the, uh, the food service to the parents and to the children he would go to PTA meetings. He would go to parent nights at the school. He would bring food. He would serve it. And, and he did a lot of work with pre-testing the food and having, having students try it out before he introduced a new dish. And so he began gradually then to up that from 52% to 60 And I think perhaps not now it's maybe 65% of the students. So that's making the difference for the income. The other thing that he did, he just happened to read in the paper that the Meals for Wheels program in Riverside, their vendor was going to raise the price of the meals that they were buying, and they weren't going to be able to afford them anymore. And so, they're actually, the, literally, the Meals on Wheels program to the to the elderly was in in jeopardy. And he went to the superintendent of schools and said, "You know, we can be heroes here. We can save this program, and we can make money if we became uh, the vendors for the for the Meals on Wheels program." And so, they're using their kitchens that when they're not using them for cooking school food. And they're actually then able to uh, to bring in some more income. And once word about this got out, then other agencies in the city came to them and said, well, could you provide food for us? So it's that kind of a way that uh, people are needing creatively to look. And Rodney's very clear. He says, I'm running a business here, and I've got to think about it as a business. I've got to think about my clients as students and, and their families as customers. And I have to look at what are the ways that we make this business work while doing what is our mission, which is feeding healthy food to the children. Wow. Talk about thinking outside the box. That was a brilliant problem-solving strategy that benefited the whole community. Right. And, and there are a few other things that people have done that, that have worked. Just, for instance, in improving the recycling of the materials, composting, if they have a garden and can compost the, uh, the scraps left over from lunch, Schools are finding that they're saving literally thousands of dollars in what they were just paying for trash hauling, and that money then can go back into supporting better food in the 
in the dis- in the district. Another thing in the the first district I know that it and perhaps it's the only district so far to have done it. Davis, California, actually passed a tax measure where they agreed as a city to tax themselves in order to buy better food for the schools. Mm. Well, it certainly makes sense because if we don't pay up front, we know we're going to pay later on with diseases related to childhood obesity and diabetes. So, yeah, it takes a different way of thinking uh, rather than the short-term thinking, a little bit more of a long-term approach. You know, I loved, uh, in the beginning of, of your chapters, you typically start them with a quote, and I love the one by Winston Churchill that says, we shape our buildings, and afterwards, our buildings shape us. I think, uh, also, your book is very wise in pointing out that students wa- are watching us very closely and carefully. They want us to model the right thing. They want us to do the right thing by them. And so this whole idea of designing buildings not only to conserve energy and water and save money, but also to teach children how to design buildings in the future to mm-hmm. do all of those things makes so much sense. I think so, and, and I think, as, as you mentioned, students are very aware, and, and one of the things which they're most aware of is when there are contradictions between what they're being told by authority people, whether it's teachers or principals, school districts, and what those districts are actually doing themselves. And they, they spot that right away. That was, that was how, in fact, that the Center for Eco Literacy got involved in school food to begin with because we were doing a lot of work supporting some of that Garden Every Schools program and supporting school gardens and nutrition teaching going along with that and discovered that what students were learning in those nutrition classes was being contradicted as soon as they walked into the cafeteria. Mm. And they're very aware of those contradictions. Yeah. They really ask they really ask adults to have integrity and I think it's our responsibility to give it to them and to be accountable to them. If you're just joining us, we are having a conversation with Michael Stone, who is the senior editor at the Center for Ecoliteracy and the author of a brand new book which is called Smart by Nature, Schooling for Sustainability. And I would recommend it for teachers and parents. Anyone who cares about children and the environment and our future, the future of our planet. I should ask you, Michael, about the Center for Ecoliteracy. I know that your mission is the center bases its work on four guiding principles, that nature is our teacher, that sustainability is a community practice, that the real world is the optimal learning environment, and sustainable living is rooted in a deep knowledge of place. How did you get started with the Center for Eco-Literacy? How did I personally get started? Yeah. I was working at Whole Earth Magazine and the Whole Earth Catalog for about 10 years before I came to the Center, and I happened to write a story about one of the projects that the Center for Eco-Literacy had been supporting. It was a project which you may have heard about. It began as an endangered species project, saving shrimp, which are found in only 17 streams here in Northern California. And this emerged finally into a very extensive and and very wonderful program called Students and Teachers Restoring a Watershed. I wrote about that as a feature story in in the magazine, and through that I became connected with the people at the Center for Eco-Literacy, and then they had another project they were doing, and they asked me would I be interested in working with them on that one, and and I did that one, and so then I, I did some work off and on for, oh, maybe a year, and then a full-time position opened up, and they offered it to me, and here I am. Yeah. Well, tell me something. 
what is eco-literacy? I think eco-literacy is, as we were talking before about um, what's important to know about sustainability, I think eco-literacy is, for us, it's a matter of the knowledge that's necessary in order to understand the natural world, understand how to work in in complementation to that, as well as then values, skills, everything that you need in order to take that knowledge and put it into practice. I think those things all together we would think of as eco-literacy. There are many factors in our society that that seem to be fighting against this ecological or sustainable lifestyle. Our children today are steeped in media, which promote consumption, which don't promote thinking. In fact, I think I just saw an unthink campaign, if you can believe it, um, by one of the fast food uh, companies. Yeah, We're asking children to think, and yet the media that they're given really fosters non-thinking, just blind consumption, blind faith that having more things will bring happiness. And we know that children who spend more time with media – are less connected to their natural world. And I wonder, you know, how the center deals with those competing forces in a child's life. That's a very, very good question. And I I think what we do as as a center is try to provide resources to to teachers and and to to schools to help them understand how to provide an alternative. And And then I think working with with teachers on how do you use a garden. We, we produced a book uh, called Getting Started, which is actually now available as a, a free download on our website on how to start a school garden. So what we try to do is provide ideas, resources, uh, consulting to schools to, to help them provide the, al- the alternative opportunities. And I think, and I think then we, we have not gotten so involved ourselves, for instance, with legislation about things like advertising of, of junk food to, to students, but we've certainly tried to be encouraging of those people who have been trying to get at that from the legislative end to say not only do we want to provide an alternative for them, but we we know that that its influence is so pervasive that something's got to be done and, and to keep those advertisements out of the schools, for instance. So that we've, uh, we've certainly been encouraging people who are trying to do that from that direction. Mm-hmm. The reason why I promote the Center for Eco-Literacy, for one practical reason, is that it gives parents and teachers who care a great source for ideas and resources. And it makes us feel like we're not alone mm-hmm. in fighting this battle, which is why I love the book, of course, because it's yet one more tool in our toolbox to make a difference in children's lives. You know, one of the issues that we were talking about before we started the interview was this whole concept of sustainability and how we need to really reframe that a little bit. And I love the way you just use the word health, children's health. And that is an underlying theme in this book. Another one is simply the economics of doing the right thing. So you've got schools that are finding that they're saving money by conserving water and energy. Give me some examples of those. Well, I, I think that most, actually most of the work in, in new schools, the building green schools, I think over and over again we, we worked with a school or we, we wrote about a school in Arkansas that did that, schools in Chicago. I think, I think that with some things, energy particularly, water is a second one, uh, the numbers are just there now, and I think any school district that looks at it or a state, state of Ohio 
just calculated how many billions, literally billions of dollars, they would save by building green, the buildings that they were already going to be building anyway. And so that those, those kinds of things then begin to become obvious. I think, I think some of the other ways that are less obvious with money saving have to do with, as you were talking about earlier, thinking ahead, to begin to look long-term. I mean, it seems like such an obvious kind of thing to think, what's this going to cost over time? But in fact, the way that school districts are often organized, the way that their financing is, is set up, there's a big premium on keeping the initial costs down and less concern about what are you going to do over time. And so the schools will, will perhaps save some money on building something cheaper in the beginning and then pay much more for it, whether it's the supplies, whether it's the energy that's saved in the long run. So part of what we're always trying to do is to encourage schools to think ahead, to, to realize that long-term these problems are going to come back to them if they don't address them when they build a new building, when they retrofit a building, when they do upgrades, so that a lot of it is, is that kind of thing, is change, changing the way people are thinking. Another important way that people are thinking is in planning to begin to look, to think systemically, to look at what happens if you're not only thinking about the heating system or the cooling system, but you're thinking about the windows, you're thinking about the orientation of the building. And it's, it's a fairly new thing among schools and, and architects and designers to really begin to realize that there are perhaps trade-offs where they can save an enormous amount of money if the building is built is designed in a way that it needs less air conditioning or that it needs less heating. And for a long time, people just, you know, they, they hired a architect and they hired somebody to design the heating system, they hired somebody else to design the electrical system, and just realizing what happens if you bring all those people together from the beginning. The school that we worked with, talked about in Arkansas, they estimated that probably it, that added about five months to their building process, and that, you know, there was a cost to that. But when they begin to calculate the millions of dollars they're going to save over time because they took the time to make do that kind of systemic thinking, they said, we'll never do it another way if we, next time we build a building. Mm. So when you were compiling this, the book and the stories that make up this book, did you have any aha moments? I think that that's a very interesting question. I think that one aha mo- moment is, that, is the one that you alluded to earlier, how many people are doing good work and really feel they're alone, really feel where mm-hmm. nobody else is doing it. We've, we've had that, that experience. We've, one of the things that we do is, is uh, offer seminars, several seminars a year, where people come from all over the country and increasingly from all around the world. And one of the most important times out of this, this say it's a two- or three-day seminar, is really the first hour when people look around the room and find out who else is doing this find out that they're not alone, that, for some people, that's the lesson they take home from, from that seminar. And so just discovering that, and that's another reason why we wrote the book, was to, to realize that there are people all over the country, and literally every section of the country, every type of school, independent schools, public schools, charter schools, schools with money, schools without money, who are all finding ways to, to do this and often are not so aware of what each other are doing. And so, that's, so that was an important aha, uh-huh, I think. The other aha, uh-huh, which is a little less positive, but I think, I think it's pointing towards directions that we may be able to go, is that a lot, when, when people think about sustainability, 
they often think about the buildings. They think about whether they're energy efficient. They think about recycling programs. They think about gardens, perhaps. Not so often have they found ways to integrate that kind of change back into the academic program. And mm. So I think that partly what we did, we looked at a lot of schools, and then we picked schools for the book, which are finding ways to do that, because that's so important. I think students learn a certain amount just by being in a green building, but when you use that building as a teaching tool, they learn so much more. And so that was an important realization that schools are having trouble doing that and that we felt it would be helpful to them to be able to give them some examples of places that are doing that successfully. Well, I commend you for building community around sustainability. And our time has come to a close, but I want to give you the opportunity to give our listeners a charge. What actions would you like them to take to make a difference in the lives of children and the health of children? I think the first thing to do is to find out what's going on at your schools. And that, that could mean going and having lunch at the school. could mean perhaps meeting with the superintendent. could be talking, certainly talking, if you're a parent, talking with your kids. Find out what's happening at your school and then, and then kind of look inside yourself and say, well, what, what do I feel good about that? What don't I feel good about? What's not happening here? And then begin to say, who else may feel the same way? And maybe it's another parent. Sometimes it's a school nurse or it's the director of the food service. Who are the other people who are prepared to work together with me on, uh, on changing this? And then to find which of the many, many issues are the ones that really, really inspire you, really get your passion going, and, and begin with that. I think, I think that it's an important lesson is not to try to change everything right away. Pick what you care most about that you're willing to put the effort into, and then find out who's responsible for the decisions that would need to be made. Because, you, I mean, you spend a lot of time looking at food and school food and so on. Some district, some District decisions are important, but sometimes it's, a, it's really a federal policy or it's a state policy, and people need to find out who can actually make the difference that they want to see done and then focus their efforts there rather than kind of going into the food service director and saying, I want you to change something that, in fact, they have no control over. Mm-hmm. Michael, that's great advice, and it's a great book, Smart by Nature. Michael Stone is senior editor at the Center for Eco-Literacy. Thank you for being with us, Michael. Thank you for writing this book, and thank you for your work at the Center. And I want to encourage our listeners to visit the Center for Eco-Literacy. If you go to www.ecoliteracy.org, you will be delighted by what you find. So thank you for everyone for joining us. I want to close by reminding our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, Thank you again, Michael. Well, thank you. It was a delight to be on and get a chance to talk with you. Same here. Bye-bye.